Recorded Books presents an unabridged recording of Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes in a new translation by Edith Grossman narrated by George Guidel. This book was originally published in 1605. This translation is copyrighted 2003 by Edith Grossman. This recording is copyrighted 2003 by Recorded Books. Don Quixote's extraordinary influence and significance was once more reaffirmed when 100 major writers from 54 countries recently voted it the best work of fiction in the world. Translator Edith Grossman notes that one reason for Don Quixote's exalted position is that it contains within itself practically every imaginative technique and device used by subsequent fiction writers to engage their readers and construct their works. It is a book that crystallized forever the making of literature out of life and out of literature itself, that explored for the first time the blurred and shifting frontiers between fact and fiction, imagination and history, perception and physical reality. Cervantes wrote in a crackling, up-to-date Spanish that was neither archaic nor quaint, but was an intrinsic part of his time, a modern language that both reflected and helped to shape the way people experienced the world. And now, Don Quixote. First part of the ingenious gentleman, Don Quixote of La Mancha. Prologue. Idle reader, without my swearing to it, you can believe that I would like this book, the child of my understanding, to be the most beautiful, the most brilliant, and the most discreet that anyone could imagine but I have not been able to contravene the natural order. In it, like begets like. And so what could my barren and poorly cultivated wits beget but the history of a child who is dry, withered, capricious, and filled with inconstant thoughts never imagined by anyone else, which is just what one would expect of a person begotten in a prison, where every discomfort has its place, and every mournful sound makes its home. Tranquility, a peaceful place, the pleasant countryside, serene skies, murmuring fountains, a calm spirit, are a great motivation for the most barren muses to prove themselves fertile and produce offspring that fill the world with wonder and joy. A father may have a child who is ugly and lacking in all the graces and the love he feels for him puts a blindfold over his eyes so that he does not see his defects, but considers them signs of charm and intelligence, and recounts them to his friends as if they were clever and witty. But though I seem to be the father, I am the stepfather of Don Quixote, and I do not wish to go along with the common custom and implore you, almost with tears in my eyes, as others do, dearest reader, to forgive or ignore the faults you may find in this my child, for you are neither his kin nor his friend. 
and you have a soul in your body and a will as free as anyone's, and you are in your own house where you are lord as the sovereign is master of his revenues, and you know the old saying, Under cover of my cloak I can kill the king, which exempts and excuses you from all respect and obligation. And you can say anything you desire about this history without fear that you will be reviled for the bad things or rewarded for the good that you might say about it. I wanted only to offer it to you plain and bare, unadorned by a prologue or the endless catalogue of sonnets, epigrams, and laudatory poems that are usually placed at the beginning of books. For I can tell you that although it cost me some effort to compose, none seemed greater than creating the preface you are now reading. I picked up my pen many times to write it, and many times I put it down again, because I did not know what to write. And once, when I was baffled, with the paper in front of me, my pen behind my ear, my elbow propped on the writing table, and my cheek resting in my hand, pondering what I would say, a friend of mine, a man who is witty and wise, unexpectedly came in, and seeing me so perplexed, asked the reason. And I hid nothing from him and said I was thinking about the prologue I had to write for the history of Don Quixote, and the problem was that I did not want to write it, yet did not want to bring to light the deeds of so noble a knight without one. For how could I not be confused at what that old legislator, the public, will say when it sees that after all the years I have spent asleep in the silence of obscurity, I emerge now carrying all my years on my back, with a tail as dry as espartograss, devoid of invention, deficient in style, poor in ideas, and lacking all erudition and doctrine, without notes in the margins, or annotations at the end of the book, when I see that other books, even if they are profane fictions, are so full of citations from Aristotle, Plato, and the entire horde of philosophers that readers are moved to admiration and consider the authors to be well-read, erudite, and eloquent men. Even more so when they cite Holy Scripture. People are bound to say they are new St. Thomases and other doctors of the Church, and for this they maintain so ingenious a decorum that in one line they depict a heartbroken lover, and in the next they write a little Christian sermon that is a joy and a pleasure to hear or read. My book will lack all of this, for I have nothing to note in the margin or to annotate at the end, and I certainly don't know which authors I have followed so that I can mention them at the beginning as everyone else does in alphabetical order beginning with Aristotle and ending with Xenophon and with Zoolus and Zeuxis, though one was a slanderer and the other a painter. My book will also lack sonnets at the beginning, especially sonnets whose authors are dukes, marquises, counts, bishops, ladies, or celebrated poets, though if I asked two or three officials who are friends of mine, I know they would give me a few that would be more than the equal of ones by writers who are more famous in our Spain. In short, my friend, I continued, I have decided that Don Quixote should remain buried in the archives of La Mancha until heaven provides someone who can adorn him with all the things he lacks. For I find myself incapable of correcting the situation because of my incompetence and my lack of learning. 
and because I am by nature too lazy and slothful to go looking for authors to say what I know how to say without them. This is the origin of the perplexity and abstraction in which you found me. The reasons you have heard from me are enough reason for my being in this state. On hearing this, my friend clapped his hand to his forehead, burst into laughter, and said, By God, brother, now I am disabused of an illusion I have lived with for all the time I have known you, for I always considered you perceptive and prudent in everything you do. But now I see that you are as far from having those qualities as heaven is from earth. How is it possible that things so trivial and so easy to remedy can have the power to perplex and absorb an intelligence as mature as yours, and one so ready to demolish and pass over much greater difficulties? By my faith, this does not have its origins in lack of skill, but in an excess of laziness and a paucity of reasoning. Do you want to see if what I say is true? Then listen carefully and you will see how in the blink of an eye I confound all your difficulties and remedy all the problems that you say bewilder you and make you fearful to bring to light the history of your famous Don Quixote, the paragon and model of all knights errant. Tell me, I replied, listening to what he was saying, how do you intend to fill the void of my fear and bring clarity to the chaos of my confusion? To which he said, First, to solve the question of the sonnets, epigrams, or laudatory poems by distinguished and titled people, which you need at the beginning, you must make a certain effort and write them yourself. And then you can baptize them with any name you want, attributing them to Prester John of the Indies, or to the Emperor of Trebizond, both of whom I have heard were famous poets. And if they were not and certain pedants and university graduates backbite and gossip about the truth of the attributions, you should not give two maravedis for what they say, because even if they prove the lie, they won't cut off the hand you use to write with. As for citing in the margins, the books and authors that were the source of the sayings and maxims you put into your history, all you have to do is insert some appropriate maxims or phrases in Latin, ones that you know by heart, or at least... That won't cost you too much trouble to look up. So that if you speak of freedom and captivity, you can say, Non bene pro toto libertas venditur auro. And then, in the margin, you cite Horace, or whoever it was who said it. If the subject is the power of death, you can use, Pallida mors, aequo pulsat pede pauperum tabernas, regumque tures. If it's the friendship and love that God commands us to have for our enemies, you turn right to Holy Scripture, which you can do with a minimum of effort, and say the words of God himself. Ego autem dico vobis, diligite inimicos vestros. If you mention evil thoughts, go to the gospel. De corde exeunt cogitationes malae. If the topic is the fickleness of friends, Cato's there, ready with his couplet. Donic eris felix, multos numerabis amicos. Tempora si fuerint nubila solus eris. And with these little Latin phrases and others like them, people will think you are a grammarian. Being one is no small honor and advantage these days. 
As for putting annotations at the end of the book, certainly you can do it this way. If you name some giant in your book, make him the giant Goliath, and just by doing that, which is almost no trouble at all, you have a nice long annotation, because then you can write the giant Goliath, or Goliath, was a Philistine whom the shepherd David slew with a stone in the valley of Terebinth, as recounted in the Book of Kings. And you can easily find the chapter. After this, to show that you are a scholar in humane letters and a cosmographer, be sure to mention the Tahoe River in your history, and you'll have another worthy annotation if you write, The Tahoe River received its name from a king of all the Spains. It is born in that place and dies in the ocean sea, kissing the walls of the famous city of Lisbon, and it is thought that its sands are of gold, etc. If you mention thieves, I will tell you the history of Caicos, which I know by heart. If the subject is prostitutes, there's the Bishop of Mondoniedo, who will provide you with Lamia, Lida, and Flora, and citing him will be a credit to you. If you refer to cruelty, Ovid will give you Medea, enchanters and sorcerers, and you have Homer's Calypso, valiant captains, and none other than Julius Caesar will give you himself in his commentaries, and Plutarch will provide you with a thousand Alexanders. If you write about love, with the couple of ounces of Tuscan that you know, you'll run right into Leon Ebreo, who will inflate your meters. And, if you don't care to travel to foreign lands, right at home you have Fonseca's Del Amor de Dios, which summarizes everything that you or the most ingenious writer might wish to know about the subject. In short, all you have to do is to name the names or touch on the histories that I have mentioned, and leave it to me to put in annotations and notes. I swear to you that I'll fill up the margins and use four quartos of paper at the end. Let's turn now to the citation of authors, found in other books and missing in yours. The solution to this is very simple, because all you have to do is find a book that cites them all from A to Z, as you put it. Then you'll put that same alphabet in your book, and though the lie is obvious, it doesn't matter, since you'll have little need to use them. Perhaps someone will be naive enough to believe you have consulted all of them in your plain and simple history. If it serves no other purpose, at least a lengthy catalogue of authors will give the book an unexpected authority. Furthermore, no one will try to determine if you followed them or did not follow them, having nothing to gain from that. Besides, if I understand it correctly, this book of yours has no need for any of the things you say it lacks because all of it is an invective against books of chivalry, which Aristotle never thought of, and St. Basil never mentioned, and Cicero never saw, and whose unbelievable absurdities do not enter into the calculations of factual truth or the observations of astrology. Geometrical measurements are of no importance to them, and neither is the refutation of arguments used in rhetoric. There is no reason for your book to preach to anyone weaving the human with the divine, which is a kind of cloth no Christian intelligence should wear. It only has to make use of mimesis in the writing, and the more precise that is, the better the writing will be. And since this work of yours intends only to undermine the authority and wide acceptance that books of chivalry have in the world and among the public, there is no reason for you to go begging for maxims from philosophers, counsel from Holy Scripture, fictions from poets, orations from rhetoricians, or miracles from saints. Instead, 
you should strive in plain speech, with words that are straightforward, honest, and well-placed, to make your sentences and phrases sonorous and entertaining, and have them portray, as much as you can and as far as it is possible, your intention, making your ideas clear without complicating and obscuring them. Another thing to strive for, reading your history, should move the melancholy to laughter, increase the joy of the cheerful, not irritate the simple, fill the clever with admiration for its invention, not give the serious reason to scorn it, and allow the prudent to praise it. In short, keep your eye on the goal of demolishing the ill-founded apparatus of these chivalric books, despised by many and praised by so many more, and if you accomplish this, you will have accomplished no small thing. In deep silence, I listened to what my friend told me, and his words made so great an impression on me that I did not dispute them but acknowledged their merit and wanted to use them to write this prologue in which you will see, gentle reader, the cleverness of my friend, my good fortune in finding the adviser I needed in time, and your own relief at finding so sincere and uncomplicated a history as that of the famous Don Quixote of La Mancha, who is thought by all the residents of the district of Montiel to have been the most chaste lover and most valiant knight seen in those environs for many years. I do not want to charge you too much for the service I have performed in introducing you to so noble and honorable a knight, but I do want you to thank me for allowing you to make the acquaintance of the famous Sancho Panza, his squire, in whom, in my opinion, I have summarized for you all the squirely wit and charm scattered throughout the great mass of inane books of chivalry. And having said this, may God grant you health and not forget me. Wale. To the book of Don Quixote of La Mancha. Urganda the Unrecognized. In this form of humorous poetic composition called Versos de Caborato, lined with unfinished endings, the syllables following the last stressed syllable in the final word of each line are dropped. If to reach goodly read, O book, you proceed with call, you cannot by the fool be called a stumbling nin. But if you are too impay, and pull the loaf untime from the fire, and go careen into the hands of the dim, you'll see them lost and puzz, though they long to appear learn. And since experience teach that neath a tree that stir the shade is the most shelt in Behar, your star, so luck unto you a royal tree off its fruit most noble prin. There a generous duke does flow like a second Alexander. Seek out his shade, for bold is favored by Dame Forch. You will recount the adventure of a gentleman from La Manche whose idle reading of Nov caused him to lose his rees. Fair maidens, arms, and shiv spurred him to imitate of Orlando Furio, exemplar of knightly love. By feats of his arms so might he won the Lady of Tobo. Do not inscribe in discre 
on your shield or hieroglyph, for when your hand lacks face, with juices and trays you wage. Be humble in your dedicate, and you will hear no diri. What, Don Alvaro de la Lu, and great Hannibal of Carth, and in Spain, King Francis, all lamenting his misfortune. Since it's not the will of hair for you to be quite as clear as one Latin the Afra, avoid Latin words and fray. Don't pretend to erudite or make claims to philo when you commence the fake and twist your mouth into sep. Those who are truly the learn will call your tricks into quests. Don't mind the business of of and don't engage in goss. It's a sign of utmost whiz. Ignore the faults of your brov. Those who speak much too glib often fail in their intent. Your only goal and ambi should be a good reputation. The writer who stoops to fall gains nothing but constant sin. Be careful. It is improve if your walls are made of chris to pick up stones and peb and throw them at your knee. Let the mature man of Rees, in the works that he compose, place his feet with circumspect. If his writing's too light heart, meant for young girls' sheer amuse, he writes only for the sim. Amadis of Gaul to Don Quixote of La Mancha A Sonnet You, who mimicked the tearful life of woe that I, in isolation, scorned by love, led on the lofty heights of Peña Pobre, when all my joy did shrink to penitence, you, to whom your eyes did give to drink abundant waters, though briny with salt tears, and, removing for your sake its mineral wealth, earth did give of the earth for you to eat, be certain that for all eternity, as long, at least, as golden-haired Apollo drives steeds across the fourth celestial sphere, you will enjoy renown as a valiant knight. Your kingdom will be first among all realms, and your wise chronicler unique on earth. Don Belianis of Greece to Don Quixote of La Mancha A Sonnet I bruised and fought and cut and said and did more than any knight-errant who e'er lived. I was deft, I was valiant, I was proud. I avenged a thousand wrongs and righted more. To lady fame I gave eternal deeds. I was a lover courtly and discreet. To me great giants were no more than dwarves, and I answered every challenge with a duel. I had dame fortune prostrate at my feet. My prudence seized on chance and never failed to turn her to me, pulling with both hands. And yet, though my good fortunes ever soared as high as the horned moon that sails the sky, I envy, O oh Quixote, your great feats. Lady Oriana to Dulcinea of Toboso A Sonnet Oh, if only, beauteous Dulcinea, for greater ease and peace, I had my castle Miraflores in Toboso, could change its London for the comforts of your town. 
Oh, if only your desire and your dress adorned my soul and body, I could see the famous knight you made so fortunate in unequal combat with his enemies. Oh, if only I chastely might escape Sir Amadis, as you did Don Quixote, that courteous and noble errant knight, then I'd be the envied, not the envying, and melancholy time would turn to joy, and I'd delight in pleasures without end. Gandalin, squire to Amadis of Gaul, to Sancho Panza, squire to Don Quixote. A Sonnet O oh, hail, famed man, when our good lady fortune brought you to this our squirely vocation, she carried out her plan with so much care that you ne'er suffered grief or dire disgrace. Now the hoe and the scythe do not repel knight-errantry. Now it is common custom to find a simple squire, and so I denounce the pride that sets its sights upon the moon. I envy you your donkey and your name. I envy you as well the saddlebags that proved your forethought and sagacity. Hail once again, O Sancho, so good a man, that only you, when the Ovid of our Spain bows to kiss your hand, smack him on the head. From Donoso, an eclectic poet, to Sancho Panza and Rocinante. I am the squire, Sancho Pan, of the Manchigan Don Quixote. I often turned oft retreat, and lived, the better part discreet, that wise man called Viadier, summarized his long life's mot in a single word, withdraw. That's the view in Celestie, a book that'd be divine, I reck, if it embraced more of the Hume. To Rocinante. I am famous Rocinante, great-grandson of Babier, for the sin of being skin. I belonged to Don Quixote. I ran races like a slack, but was never late for sup. I learned this from Lazari. To empty out the blind man's wine, you must use a straw. How clear! Orlando Furioso to Don Quixote of La Mancha. A sonnet. If you are not a peer, then you've had none, for you would have no peer among a thousand. Nor could there be a peer where you are found, unconquerable conqueror, ne'er conquered. I am Orlando, who, Quixote, undone by fair Angelica, saw distant seas, and offered on the altars of Lady Fame the valor that respected oblivion. I cannot be your equal. I am humbled by your prowess, your noble deeds, your fame, for you, like me, have gone and lost your mind. But my equal you will be if you defeat the haughty moor, the charging beast. Today we are called equal in ill-fated love. The Knight of Phoebus to Don Quixote of La Mancha a sonnet. This my sword was no equal to your own, O Spanish Phoebus, courtly paragon, nor to your heights of valor this my hand, though it flashed where the day is born and dies. 
I turned down empires, refused the monarchy that red-lit Orient offered me in vain, so I could look upon the sovereign visage of Claridiana, my most beauteous dawn. I loved her by a miracle rare and strange, and, absent in misfortune, she came to fear this arm of mine that tamed her raging scorn. But you, noble Quixote, high and brave, your ladies made you eternal in this world, and through you she is famous, good and wise. From Solis Dan to Don Quixote of La Mancha A Sonnet Well may it be, Quixote, that sheer folly hath overturned thy reason and thy wit, but ne'er wilt thou be assailed by any man as one who hath wrought actions vile and base. These thy great feats will judge this to be truth, for thou, knight-errant, hath righted many wrongs, and wreaked thy vengeance on a thousand varlets for dastardly assaults and villainies. And if thy lady love, fair Dulcinea, treateth thee with harsh and rigorous scorn, and looketh not with pity on thy grief, in such affliction let thy comfort be that Sancho Panza wast no go-between, a fool he, she of stone, and thou no lover. Dialogue between Babieca and Rocinante A Sonnet B. Why is it, Rocinante, that you're so thin? R. Too little food, and far too much hard labor. B. But what about your feed, your oats and hay? R. My master doesn't leave a bite for me. B. Well, senor, your lack of breeding shows because your ass's tongue insults your master. R. He's the ass, from the cradle to the grave. Do you want proof? See what he does for love. B. Is it foolish to love? R. It's not too smart. B. You're a philosopher. R. I just don't eat. B. And do you complain of the squire? R. Not enough. How can I complain, despite my aches and pains, if master and squire, or is it majordomo, are nothing but skin and bone, like Rocinante? Part One of the Ingenious Gentleman, Don Quixote of La Mancha Chapter One Which describes the condition and profession of the famous gentleman, Don Quixote of La Mancha. Somewhere in La Mancha, in a place whose name I do not care to remember, a gentleman lived not long ago, one of those who has a lance and ancient shield on a shelf, and keeps a skinny nag and a greyhound for racing. An occasional stew, beef more often than lamb, hash most nights, eggs and abstinence on Saturdays, lentils on Fridays, sometimes squab as a treat on Sundays, these consumed three-fourths of his income. The rest went for a light woolen tunic and velvet breeches and hose of the same material for feast days, while weekdays were honoured with dun-coloured coarse cloth. He had a housekeeper past forty, a niece not yet twenty, and a man of all work who did everything from saddling the horse to pruning the trees. Our gentleman, 
was approximately fifty years old. His complexion was weathered, his flesh scrawny, his face gaunt, and he was a very early riser and a great lover of the hunt. Some claimed that his family name was Quijada, or Quejada, for there is a certain amount of disagreement among the authors who write of this matter, although reliable conjecture seems to indicate that his name was Quejana. But this does not matter very much to our story. In its telling there is absolutely no deviation from the truth. And so let it be said that this aforementioned gentleman spent his times of leisure, which meant most of the year, reading books of chivalry with so much devotion and enthusiasm that he forgot almost completely about the hunt and even about the administration of his estate. And in his rash curiosity and folly he went so far as to sell acres of arable land in order to buy books of chivalry to read, and he brought as many of them as he could into his house and he thought none was as fine as those composed by the worthy Feliciano de Silva, because the clarity of his prose and complexity of his language seemed to him more valuable than pearls, in particular when he read the declarations and missives of love where he would often find written, The reason for the unreason to which my reason turns so weakens my reason that with reason I complain of thy beauty and also when he read, The heavens on high divinely heighten thy divinity with the stars, and make thee deserving of the deserts thy greatness deserves. With these words and phrases, the poor gentleman lost his mind, and he spent sleepless nights trying to understand them and extract their meaning, which Aristotle himself, if he came back to life, for only that purpose would not have been able to decipher or understand. Our gentleman was not very happy with the wounds that Don Belianis gave and received, because he imagined that no matter how great the physicians and surgeons who cured him, he would still have his face and entire body covered with scars and marks. But even so, he praised the author for having concluded his book with the promise of unending adventure and he often felt the desire to take up his pen and give it the conclusion promised there. And no doubt he would have done so, and even published it, if other greater and more persistent thoughts had not prevented him from doing so. He often had discussions with the village priest, who was a learned man, a graduate of Siguenza, regarding who had been the greater knight, Palmarin of England or Amadis of Gaul. But Master Nicolas, the village barber, said that none was the equal of the knight of Phoebus and if any could be compared to him it was Don Galaor, the brother of Amadis of Gaul, because he was moderate in everything, a knight who was not affected, not as weepy as his brother, and incomparable in questions of courage. In short, our gentleman became so caught up in reading that he spent his nights reading from dusk till dawn, and his days reading from sunrise to sunset. And so, with too little sleep, and too much reading, his brains dried up, causing him to lose his mind. His fantasy filled with everything he had read in his books, enchantments as well as combats, battles, challenges, wounds, courtings, loves, torments, 
and other impossible foolishness, and he became so convinced in his imagination of the truth of all the countless grandiloquent and false inventions he read that for him no history in the world was truer. He would say that El Cid Ruy Diaz had been a very good knight but could not compare to Amadis, the knight of the blazing sword, who with a single backstroke cut two ferocious and colossal giants in half. He was founder of Bernardo del Carpio, because at Roncesvalles he had killed the enchanted Roland, by availing himself of the tactic of Hercules when he crushed Antaeus, the son of earth, in his arms. He spoke highly of the giant Morgante, because, although he belonged to the race of giants, all of them haughty and lacking in courtesy, he alone was amiable and well-behaved. But more than any of the others, he admired Reynaldos de Montalban, above all when he saw him emerge from his castle and rob anyone he met, and when he crossed the sea and stole the idol of Mohammed made all of gold, as recounted in his history. He would have traded his housekeeper and even his niece for the chance to strike a blow at the traitor Genelon. The truth is that when his mind was completely gone, he had the strangest thought any lunatic in the world ever had, which was that it seemed reasonable and necessary to him, both for the sake of his honor and as a service to the nation, to become a knight-errant and travel the world with his armor and his horse, to seek adventures and engage in everything he had read that knights-errant engaged in, righting all manner of wrongs, and, by seizing the opportunity and placing himself in danger and ending those wrongs, winning eternal renown and everlasting fame. The poor man imagined himself already wearing the crown won by the valor of his arm, of the empire of Trebizond, at the very least. And so it was that with these exceedingly agreeable thoughts, and carried away by the extraordinary pleasure he took in them, he hastened to put into effect what he so fervently desired. And the first thing he did was to attempt to clean some armor that had belonged to his great-grandfathers, and stained with rust and covered with mildew, had spent many long years stored and forgotten in a corner. He did the best he could to clean and repair it, but he saw that it had a great defect, which was that instead of a full salad helmet with an attached neck guard, there was only a simple headpiece. But he compensated for this with his industry, and out of pasteboard he fashioned a kind of half-helmet that, when attached to the headpiece, took on the appearance of a full salad. It is true that in order to test if it was strong and could withstand a blow, he took out his sword and struck it twice, and with the first blow he undid in a moment what it had taken him a week to create. He could not help being disappointed at the ease with which he had hacked it to pieces, and to protect against that danger he made another one, placing strips of iron on the inside so that he was satisfied with its strength. And— not wanting to put it to the test again, he designated and accepted it as an extremely fine salad. Then he went to look at his nag, and though its hooves had more cracks than his master's pate, and it showed more flaws than Gonella's horse, that tantum pelis et ossa fuit, it seemed to him that Alexander's Bucephalus and Elcide's Babieca were not its equal. 
he spent four days thinking about the name he would give it. For, as he told himself, it was not seemly that the horse of so famous a knight, and a steed so intrinsically excellent, should not have a worthy name. He was looking for the precise name that would declare what the horse had been before its master became a knight-errant, and what it was now. For he was determined that if the master was changing his condition, the horse, too, would change its name to one that would win the fame and recognition its new position and profession deserved. And so, after many names that he shaped and discarded, subtracted from and added to, unmade and remade in his memory and imagination, he finally decided to call the horse Rocinante, a name, in his opinion, that was noble, sonorous, and reflective of what it had been when it was a nag before it was what it was now, which was the foremost nag in all the world. Having given a name, and one so much to his liking, to his horse, he wanted to give one to himself, and he spent another eight days pondering this, and at last he called himself Don Quixote, which is why, as has been noted, the authors of this absolutely true history determined that he undoubtedly must have been named Quijada and not Quejada, as others have claimed. In any event, recalling that the valiant Amadis had not been content with simply calling himself Amadis, but had added the name of his kingdom and realm in order to bring it fame and was known as Amadis of Gaul, he too, like a good knight, wanted to add the name of his birthplace to his own, and he called himself Don Quixote of La Mancha, thereby, to his mind, clearly stating his lineage and country and honoring it by making it part of his title. Having cleaned his armor and made a full helmet out of a simple headpiece, and having given a name to his horse, and decided on one for himself, he realized that the only thing left for him to do was to find a lady to love. For the knight-errant without a lady-love was a tree without leaves or fruit, a body without a soul. He said to himself, If I, because of my evil sins or my good fortune, meet with a giant somewhere, as ordinarily befalls knights-errant, and I unseat him with a single blow, or cut his body in half, or, in short, conquer and defeat him, would it not be good to have someone to whom I could send him, so that he might enter and fall to his knees before my sweet lady, and say in the humble voice of surrender, I, lady, am the giant Caraculiambro, lord of the island Malindrania, defeated in single combat by the never-sufficiently-praised knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, who commanded me to appear before your ladyship, so that your highness might dispose of me as you chose. Oh, how pleased our good knight was when he had made this speech, and even more pleased when he discovered the one he could call his lady. It is believed that in a nearby village there was a very attractive peasant girl with whom he had once been in love, although she, apparently, never knew or noticed. Her name was Aldonza Lorenzo, and he thought it a good idea to call her the lady of his thoughts, and searching for a name that would not differ significantly from his, and would suggest and imply that of a princess and great lady, he decided to call her Dulcinea of Toboso, because she came from Toboso, a name to his mind that was musical and beautiful, 
and filled with significance, as were all the others he had given to himself and everything pertaining to him. Chapter 2 Which tells of the first sally that the ingenious Don Quixote made from his native land. And so, having completed these preparations, he did not wish to wait any longer to put his thought into effect, impelled by the great need in the world that he believed was caused by his delay, for there were evils to undo, wrongs to right, injustices to correct, abuses to ameliorate, and offenses to rectify. And one morning, before dawn on a hot day in July, without informing a single person of his intentions, and without anyone seeing him, he armed himself with all his armor, and mounted Rocinante, wearing his poorly constructed helmet, and he grasped his shield and took up his lance, and through the side door of a corral he rode out into the countryside, with great joy and delight at seeing how easily he had given a beginning to his virtuous desire. But as soon as he found himself in the countryside, he was assailed by a thought so terrible, it almost made him abandon the enterprise he had barely begun. He recalled that he had not been dubbed a knight, and, according to the law of chivalry, he could not and must not take up arms against any knight. Since this was the case, he would have to bear blank arms, like a novice knight, without a device on his shield, until he had earned one through his own efforts. These thoughts made him waver in his purpose. But his madness being stronger than any other faculty, he resolved to have himself dubbed a knight by the first person he met, in imitation of many others who had done the same, as he had read in the books that had brought him to this state. As for his arms being blank and white, he planned to clean them so much that when the dubbing took place, they would be whiter than ermine. He immediately grew serene, and continued on his way, following only the path his horse wished to take, believing that the virtue of his adventures lay in doing this. And as our new adventurer travelled along, he talked to himself, saying, Who can doubt that in times to come, when the true history of my famous deeds comes to light, the wise man who compiles them, when he begins to recount my first sally so early in the day, will write, in this manner. No sooner had rubicund Apollo spread over the face of the wide and spacious earth the golden strands of his beauteous hair, no sooner had diminutive and bright-hued birds with dulcet tongues greeted in sweet, mellifluous harmony the advent of rosy dawn, who, forsaking the soft couch of her zealous consort, revealed herself to mortals through the doors and balconies of the Manchegan horizon, then the famous knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, abandoning the downy bed of idleness, mounted his famous steed Rocinante, and commenced to ride through the ancient and illustrious countryside of Montiel. And it was true that this was where he was riding. And he continued, Fortunate the time and blessed the age when my famous deeds will come to light worthy of being carved in bronze, sculpted in marble, and painted on tablets as a remembrance in the future. O oh, thou wise enchanter, whoever thou mayest be, whose task it will be to chronicle this wondrous history, I implore thee not to overlook my good Rocinante, my eternal companion on all my travels and peregrinations. 
Then he resumed, speaking as if he truly were in love. Oh, Princess Dulcinea, mistress of this captive heart, thou hast done me grievous harm in bidding me farewell, and reproving me with the harsh affliction of commanding that I not appear before thy sublime beauty. May it please thee, Senora, to recall this thy subject heart, which suffers countless trials for the sake of thy love. He strung these together with other foolish remarks, all in the manner his books had taught him, and imitating their language as much as he could. As a result, his pace was so slow, and the sun rose so quickly and ardently, that it would have melted his brains, if he had had any. He rode almost all that day, and nothing worthy of note happened to him which caused him to despair because he wanted an immediate encounter with someone on whom to test the valor of his mighty arm. Some authors say his first adventure was the one in Puerto Lapice, others claim it was the adventure of the windmills, but according to what I have been able to determine with regard to this matter, and what I have discovered written in the annals of La Mancha, the fact is that he rode all that day, and at dusk he and his horse found themselves exhausted and half dead with hunger. As he looked all around to see if he could find some castle or a sheepfold with shepherds where he might take shelter and alleviate his great hunger and need, he saw an inn not far from the path he was traveling. And it was as if he had seen a star guiding him not to the portals but to the inner towers of his salvation. He quickened his pace and reached the inn just as night was falling. At the door there happened to be two young women— the kind they call ladies of easy virtue, who were on their way to Sevilla with some mule drivers who had decided to stop at the inn that night. And since everything our adventurer thought, saw, or imagined seemed to happen according to what he had read, as soon as he saw the inn it appeared to him to be a castle, complete with four towers and spires of gleaming silver, not to mention a drawbridge and deep moat and all the other details depicted on such castles. He rode toward the inn that he thought was a castle, and when he was a short distance away, he reined in Rosinante and waited for a dwarf to appear on the parapets to signal with his trumpet that a knight was approaching the castle. But when he saw that there was some delay, and that Rosinante was in a hurry to get to the stable, he rode toward the door of the inn and saw the two profligate wenches standing there, and he thought they were two fair damsels or two gracious ladies taking their ease at the entrance to the castle. At that moment a swineherd who was driving his pigs, no excuses, that's what they're called, out of some mud holes, blew his horn, a sound that pigs respond to, and it immediately seemed to Don Quixote to be just what he had desired, which was for a dwarf to signal his arrival. And so, with extreme joy, he rode up to the inn, and the ladies, seeing a man armed in that fashion, and carrying a lance and shield, became frightened, and were about to retreat into the inn, but Don Quixote, inferring their fear from their flight, raised the pasteboard visor, revealing his dry, dusty face, and, in a gallant manner and reassuring voice, he said to them, Flee not, dear ladies, fear no villainous act from me, for the order of chivalry which I profess does not countenance or permit such deeds to be committed against any person, least of all high-born maidens such as yourselves.' 
The women looked at him, directing their eyes to his face, hidden by the imitation visor, but when they heard themselves called maidens, something so alien to their profession, they could not control their laughter, which offended Don Quixote and moved him to say, Moderation is becoming in beauteous ladies, and laughter for no reason is foolishness. But I do not say this to cause in you a woeful or dolorous disposition, for mine is none other than to serve you. The language which the ladies did not understand, and the bizarre appearance of our knight intensified their laughter, and his annoyance increased, and he would have gone even further if at that moment the innkeeper had not come out, a man who was very fat and therefore very peaceable, and when he saw that grotesque figure armed with arms as incongruous as his bridle, lance, shield, and corselet, he was ready to join the maidens in their displays of hilarity. But fearing the countless difficulties that might ensue, he decided to speak to him politely, and so he said, "'If, Senor, your grace seeks lodging, except for a bed, because there is none in this inn, a great abundance of everything else will be found here.' Don Quixote, seeing the humility of the steward of the castle fortress, which is what he thought the innkeeper and the inn were, replied, For me, good castellan, anything will do, for my trappings are my weapons, and combat is my rest. The host believed he had called him castellan because he thought him an upright Castilian, though he was an Andalusian from the San Luca coast, no less a thief than Cacus and as malicious as an apprentice page, and so he responded, In that case your grace's beds must be bare rocks, and your sleep a constant vigil. And this being true, you can surely dismount, certain of finding in this poor hovel more than enough reason, and reasons not to sleep in an entire year, let alone a single night. And having said this, he went to hold the stirrup for Don Quixote, who dismounted with extreme difficulty and travail, like a man who had not broken his fast all day long. Then he told his host to take great care with his horse, because it was the best mount that walked this earth. The innkeeper looked at the horse, and did not think it as good as Don Quixote said, or even half as good. After leading it to the stable, he came back to see what his guest might desire, and the maidens, who by this time had made peace with him, were divesting him of his armor. Although they removed his breastplate and backpiece, they never knew how or were able to disconnect the gorget or remove the counterfeit helmet, which was tied on with green cords that would have to be cut because the ladies could not undo the knots. But he absolutely refused to consent to this, and so he spent all night wearing the helmet and was the most comical and curious figure anyone could imagine. As they were disarming him, and since he imagined that those well-worn and much-used women were illustrious ladies and damsels from the castle, he said to them, with a good deal of grace and verve, Never was a knight so well served by ladies as was Don Quixote when he first sallied forth. Fair damsels tended to him, princesses cared for his horse, or Rosinante, for this is the name noble ladies of my steed, and Don Quixote of La Mancha is mine. And although I did not wish to disclose my name until the great feats performed in your service and for your benefit would reveal it, 
Perforce, the adaptation of this ancient ballad of Lancelot to our present purpose has been the cause of your learning my name before the time was ripe. But the day will come when your highnesses will command and I shall obey, and the valour of this my arm will betoken the desire I have to serve you. The women, unaccustomed to hearing such high-flown rhetoric, did not say a word in response. They only asked if he wanted something to eat. I would consume any fare, replied Don Quixote, because, as I understand it, that would be most beneficial now. It happened to be a Friday, and in all the inn there was nothing but a few pieces of a fish that in Castilla is called cod, and in Andalusia codfish, and in other places salt cod, and elsewhere smoked cod. They asked if his grace would like a little smoked cod, for there was no other fish to serve him. Since many little cod, replied Don Quixote, altogether make one large one, it does not matter to me if you give me eight reales in coins or in a single piece of eight. Moreover, it well might be that these little cod are like veal, which is better than beef, and kid, which is better than goat, but in any case bring it soon." for the toil and weight of arms cannot be borne if one does not control the stomach. They set the table at the door of the inn to take advantage of the cooler air, and the host brought Don Quixote a portion of cod that was badly prepared and cooked even worse, and bread as black and grimy as his armour. But it was a cause for great laughter to see him eat, because, since he was wearing his helmet— and holding up the visor with both hands, he could not put anything in his mouth unless someone placed it there for him. And so one of the ladies performed that task. But when it was time to give him something to drink, it was impossible, and would have remained impossible if the innkeeper had not hollowed out a reed, placing one end in the gentleman's mouth and pouring some wine in the other. And all of this Don Quixote accepted with patience in order not to have the cords of his helmet cut. At this moment, a gelder of hogs happened to arrive at the inn, and as he arrived he blew on his reed-pipe four or five times, which confirmed for Don Quixote that he was in a famous castle where they were entertaining him with music, and that the cod was trout, the bread soft and white, the prostitutes ladies, the innkeeper the castellan of the castle, and that his decision to sally forth had been a good one. But what troubled him most was not being dubbed a knight, for it seemed to him he could not legitimately engage in any adventure if he did not receive the order of knighthood. Chapter 3 Which recounts the amusing manner in which Don Quixote was dubbed a knight. And so, troubled by this thought, he hurried through the scant meal served at the inn, and when it was finished he called to the innkeeper, and after going into the stable with him, he kneeled before him and said, Never shall I rise up from this place, valiant knight, until thy courtesy grants me a boon I wish to ask of thee, one that will redound to thy glory and to the benefit of all humankind. The innkeeper, seeing his guest at his feet, and hearing these words, looked at him and was perplexed, not knowing what to do or say. He insisted that he get up, but Don Quixote refused until the innkeeper declared that he would grant the boon asked of him. 
I expected no less of thy great magnificence, my lord, replied Don Quixote. And so I shall tell thee the boon that I would ask of thee, and thy generosity has granted me, and it is that on the morrow thou wilt dub me a knight, and that this night in the chapel of thy castle I shall keep vigil over my armor, and on the morrow, as I have said, what I fervently desire will be accomplished, so that I can, as I needs must do, travel the four corners of the earth in search of adventures on behalf of those in need, this being the office of chivalry and of knights errant, for I am one of them, and my desire is disposed to such deeds. The innkeeper, as we have said, was rather sly, and already had some inkling of his guest's madness, which was confirmed when he heard him say these words, and in order to have something to laugh about that night, he proposed to humor him. And so he told him that his desire and request were exemplary, and his purpose right and proper in knights who were as illustrious as he appeared to be, and as his gallant presence demonstrated, and that he himself, in the years of his youth, had dedicated himself to that honorable profession, traveling through many parts of the world in search of adventures, to wit, the Percellis in Malaga, the Islas of Riaran, the Compass in Sevilla, the Asogejo of Segovia, the Olivera of Valencia, the Rondia in Granada, the coast of San Lucar, the Potro in Cordoba, the Ventillas in Toledo, and many other places where he had exercised the light-footedness of his feet and the light-fingeredness of his hands, committing countless wrongs, bedding many widows, undoing a few maidens, deceiving several orphans, and, finally, becoming known in every court and tribunal in almost all of Spain. In recent years he had retired to this castle where he lived on his property and that of others, welcoming all knights errant of whatever category and condition, simply because of the great fondness he felt for them, so that they might share with him their goods as recompense for his virtuous desires. He also said that in this castle there was no chapel where Don Quixote could stand vigil over his arms, for it had been demolished in order to rebuild it, but in urgent cases he knew that vigils could be kept anywhere, and on this night he could stand vigil in a courtyard of the castle. In the morning, God willing, the necessary ceremonies would be performed, and he would be dubbed a knight, and so much of a knight there could be no greater in all the world. He asked if he had any money. Don Quixote replied that he did not have a copper blanca, because he never had read in the histories of knights-errant that any of them ever carried money. To this the innkeeper replied that he was deceived, for if this was not written in the histories it was because it had not seemed necessary to the authors to write down something as obvious and necessary as carrying money and clean shirts, and if they had not this was no reason to think the knights did not carry them. It therefore should be taken as true and beyond dispute that all the knights-errant who fill so many books to overflowing carried well-provisioned purses for whatever might befall them. By the same token they carried shirts and a small chest stocked with unguents to cure the wounds they received, 
for in the fields and clearings where they engaged in combat and were wounded, there was not always someone who could heal them, unless they had for a friend some wise enchanter who instantly came to their aid, bringing through the air on a cloud a damsel or a dwarf bearing a flask of water of such great power that by swallowing a single drop the knights were so completely healed of their injuries and wounds that it was as if no harm had befallen them. But, in the event such was not the case, the knights of yore deemed it proper for their squires to be provisioned with money and other necessities, such as linen, bandages, and unguents to heal their wounds, and, if it happened that these knights had no squire, which was a rare and uncommon thing, they themselves carried everything in saddle-bags so finely made they could barely be seen on the haunches of their horse, as if they were something of greater significance, because, except in cases like these, carrying saddle-bags was not well favoured by knights errant. For this reason, he advised, for he could still give Don Quixote orders as if he were his godson, since that is what he soon would be, that from now on he not ride forth without money and the provisions he had described, and then he would see how useful and necessary they would be when he least expected it. Don Quixote promised to do as he advised with great alacrity, and so it was arranged that he would stand vigil over his arms in a large corral to one side of the inn, and Don Quixote gathered all his armor together and placed it on a trough that was next to a well, and grasping his shield he took up his lance and with noble countenance began to pace back and forth in front of the trough, and as he began his pacing night began to fall. The innkeeper told everyone in the inn about the lunacy of his guest, about his standing vigil over his armor and his expectation that he would be dubbed a knight. They marveled at so strange a form of madness and went to watch him from a distance, and saw that with a serene expression he sometimes paced back and forth. At other times, leaning on his lance, he turned his eyes to his armor and did not turn them away again for a very long time. Night had fallen but the moon was so bright it could compete with the orb whose light it reflected. And therefore everything the new knight did was seen clearly by everyone. Just then it occurred to one of the mule-drivers in the inn to water his pack of mules, and for this it was necessary to move Don Quixote's armor which was on the trough. Our knight, seeing him approach, said in a booming voice, O thou, whosoever thou art, rash knight, who cometh to touch the armor of the most valiant knight who e'er girded on a sword, lookest thou to what thou dost, and toucheth it not, if thou wanteth not to leave thy life in payment for thy audacity. The muleteer cared nothing for these words, and it would have been better for him if he had, because it meant caring for his health and well-being. Instead, he picked up the armor by the straps, and threw it a good distance away. And seeing this, Don Quixote lifted his eyes to heaven, and turning his thoughts, or so it seemed to him, to his lady Dulcinea, he said, Help me, Senora, in this the first affront aimed at this thy servant's bosom. In this my first challenge letteth not thy grace and protection fail me. And saying these and other similar phrases, and dropping his shield, he raised his lance in both hands, and gave the mule-driver so heavy a blow on the head that he knocked him to the ground, 
and the man was so badly battered that if the first blow had been followed by a second, he would have had no need for a physician to care for his wounds. Having done this, Don Quixote picked up his armor and began to pace again with the same tranquility as before. A short while later, unaware of what had happened, for the first mule driver was still in a daze, a second approached, also intending to water his mules. And when he began to remove the armor to allow access to the trough, without saying a word or asking for anyone's favor, Don Quixote again dropped his shield and again raised his lance and did not shatter it, but instead broke the head of the second mule driver into more than three pieces because he cracked his skull in at least four places. When they heard the noise, all the people in the inn hurried over, among them the innkeeper. When he saw this, Don Quixote took up his shield, placed his hand on his sword, and said, Oh, beauteous lady, strength and vigor of my submissive heart, this is the moment when thou needs must turn the eyes of thy grandeur toward this thy captive knight, who awaiteth so great an adventure. And with this he acquired, it seemed to him, so much courage, that if all the mule-drivers in the world had charged him, he would not have taken one step backward. The wounded men's companions, seeing their friends on the ground, began to hurl stones at Don Quixote from a distance, and he did what he could to deflect them with his shield, not daring to move away from the trough and leave his armor unprotected. The innkeeper shouted at them to stop because he had already told them he was crazy, and that being crazy he would be absolved even if he killed them all. Don Quixote shouted even louder, calling them perfidious traitors, and saying that the lord of the castle was a varlet and a discourteous knight for allowing knights errant to be so badly treated, and that if he had already received the order of chivalry, he would enlighten him as to the full extent of his treachery. But you, filthy and low-born rabble, I care nothing for you. Throw, approach, come, offend me all you can, for you will soon see how perforce you must pay for your rash insolence. He said this with so much boldness and so much courage that he instilled a terrible fear in his attackers, and because of this and the persuasive arguments of the innkeeper they stopped throwing stones at him, and he allowed the wounded men to withdraw and resumed his vigil over his armor with the same serenity and tranquility as before. The innkeeper did not think very highly of his guest's antics, and he decided to cut matters short and give him the accursed order of chivalry then and there before another misfortune occurred. And so he approached and begged his pardon for the impudence these low-born knaves had shown, saying he had known nothing about it but that they had been rightfully punished for their audacity. He said he had already told him there was no chapel in the castle, nor was one necessary for what remained to be done, because according to his understanding of the ceremonies of the order, the entire essence of being dubbed a knight consisted in being struck on the neck and shoulders, and that could be accomplished in the middle of a field and he had already fulfilled everything with regard to keeping a vigil over his armor, for just two hours of vigil satisfied the requirements, and he had spent more than four. Don Quixote believed everything, and said he was prepared to obey him, and that he should conclude matters with as much haste as possible, because if he was attacked again, and had already been dubbed a knight, he did not intend to leave a single person alive in the castle except for those the castellan ordered him to spare, which he would do out of respect for him. Forewarned and fearful, 
The castellan immediately brought the book in which he kept a record of the feed and straw he supplied to the mule-drivers, and with a candle-end that a servant-boy brought to him and the two aforementioned damsels, he approached the spot where Don Quixote stood, and ordered him to kneel. And reading from his book, as if he were murmuring a devout prayer, he raised his hand and struck him on the back of the neck, and after that, with his own sword, he delivered a gallant blow to his shoulders, always murmuring between his teeth as if he were praying. Having done this, he ordered one of the ladies to gird Don Quixote with his sword, and she did so with a good deal of refinement and discretion, and a good deal was needed for them not to burst into laughter at each moment of the ceremony, but the great feats they had seen performed by the new knight kept their laughter in check. As she girded on his sword, the good lady said, May God make your grace a very fortunate knight, and give you good fortune in your fights. Don Quixote asked her name, so that he might know from that day forth to whom he was obliged for the benison he had received, for he desired to offer her some part of the honor he would gain by the valor of his arm. She answered very humbly that her name was Tolosa, and that she was the daughter of a cobbler from Toledo who lived near the stalls of the Sancho Bianaya market, and no matter where she might be, she would serve him and consider him her master. Don Quixote replied that for the sake of his love, would she have the kindness to henceforth ennoble herself and call herself Doña Tolosa. She promised she would, and the other girl accoutred him with his knightly spurs, and he had almost the same conversation with her as with the one who girded on his sword. He asked her name, and she said she was called Molinera, the miller's girl, and that she was the daughter of an honorable miller from Antequera, and Don Quixote also implored her to ennoble herself and call herself Doña Molinera, offering her more services and good turns. And so, these never-before-seen ceremonies, having been performed at a gallop in less than an hour, Don Quixote found himself a knight, ready to sally forth in search of adventures, and he saddled Rocinante and mounted him, and, embracing his host, he said such strange things to him as he thanked him for the boon of having dubbed him a knight that it is not possible to adequately recount them. The innkeeper, in order to get him out of the inn, replied with words no less rhetorical but much more brief, and without asking him to pay for the cost of his lodging, he allowed him to leave at an early hour. <laughs>